0: Amen. Well, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'll put the verses up on the screen. If you'd like a Bible, why don't you send a message to our church, and we will deliver one to your porch. Uh, But we jump into the Bible week by week, because we believe that through it, God speaks to us. And so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're looking at prayers. In fact, uh, last week and this week and then the f- next week, we're looking at prayers and we're using examples from individuals within the Bible to help inform the way that we pray. And we're trying to populate our prayers with Scripture, uh, which is a good thing to do. And it's actually uh, an example for us that we find in Scripture. People pray what God has already said. And so we're looking at First Samuel chapter 2, and it's the prayer of a woman named Hannah, which is very appropriate for us on Mother's Day because Hannah was an individual who was married to a man who had two wives. Now, this is one of those instances where the Bible describes something. It doesn't prescribe something. So it describes that this man was married to Hannah and Peninnah. And it's not saying that was a great idea, but it caused conflict. And so Hannah was unable to conceive. She was barren. And Peninnah was able to conceive. And Peninnah then began to mock and provoke Hannah, and it caused her great grief. And so in chapter one, she actually prays to the Lord that God would hear her prayer, her desire to have a child, and answer that prayer. And God, in fact, does. He answers that prayer. He gives her a child, and she names him Samuel, which means the Lord has heard my request, has answered my request. And so then we get into chapter two. And now she's praying. So now she's a mom. She's aspired to be a mom. Now she is a mom. And now she's praying this incredible prayer that helps us to know something about God and how he works. So let's look at it together. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It says this, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the, in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word. We ask that you would help each of us to pray in this way, to have humility and to trust in your strength, not ours, in your strength, Lord. We pray, God, that that would change us, that it would transform us from the inside out, and we would be people of hope, people of trust, people of confidence in our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. All right, we'll see here in this prayer, three different, <clears throat> three different headings, three different things that we can observe. The first is uh, a prayer regarding what the Lord has done for Hannah in verses one and two. It's a prayer of thankfulness that God heard and answered her prayer in that very specific way of giving her a child. Secondly, we find what A prayer regarding what God does. She begins to pray kind of generally in verses 3 to 8 about how God works in the world that he has made. And then finally, we'll see a prayer regarding what God will ultimately do one day in verses 9 and 10. It's a prayer of our future hope as as believers. So let's get to work. First off, a prayer regarding what God has done in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, it says, then Hannah prayed and said, and she begins to outline Her gratefulness for how God is at work. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. She's praying with this personal thankfulness, recognizing that God has given her a heritage, a horn. It's, it's a, you know, metaphor, but it's kind of that idea of um, uh, the horn of a rhinoceros. It indicates strength. It indicates something that you would be fearful of if you landed in a, in a zoo and you found yourself face-to-face confronted with a rhinoceros that was, you know, let's say uncaged. You would, you would look at that horn and you'd be very fearful of it. But the Bible over and over again uses horn as an indication of a person's strength or status in the world. Uh, so whether it's a person or a nation or a king, it talks about it in terms of a horn. And here she's saying, God has given me a horn. He has lifted my horn high. Previously, she was barren and she didn't have a heritage. She, her status was lowly, but God has now granted her or gifted her with this incredible reality of being a mother. And she perceives then not only that she's a mom, but that God is giving her this rich inheritance. And so she's able to rejoice She's praying with this posture of worship, I rejoice, and you'll notice it's in the Lord. There's something going on here that we all need to perceive, and it's when we go from simply praising God for what he does to praising God for who he is. And she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. She's showing us this priority of prayer that We don't just want to be people who are always only asking God to do things for us. We also want to be people who are able to pray with a recognition that God is this awesome and incredible God. Verse one goes on to say, My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. She's saying generically, not just of Peninnah, her arch rival, but she's saying in general, God is giving her this deliverance. So these enemies that appear to reject God and his ways Um, she's now able to say, I'm boasting over them. My my mouth is able to boast in the Lord over my enemies for I am delighting in his deliverance. God is a God who rescues and saves and redeems. And when we begin to pray with an acknowledgement of his redeeming ability, it is what God wants us to do. We begin to pray with this awareness, this delight in his deliverance. God is a God who is able to do something for us. And it's because the fact that he's incomparable. Look at verse two. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah is saying God is incomparable to anything else. He is the holy Lord that no one else is like. There is no one beside him. There is no rock like our God. She's pointing to this profound reality that God alone is deserving of our praise and our recognition. So as she prays in this way with this thankfulness of what God has done for her personally in the giving of a child and what that means not only for her, but for her family, um, I guess I want to ask you, are you praying in that sort of way? Has God become for you your God? Has he become for you a rock and a deliverer? Has he become for you the thing in which you delight? Um, I I talk often about the the difference between acknowledging God and actually being a true believer. And and they can look very similar on the outside, but they're a world apart. And one of the things that, that distinguishes the two from each other is you can acknowledge God and know him to be true. But people who are authentic believers, they've come to treasure God. They've come to see him as a delight. They, they are praying like Hannah. They're not just praying that God would do things for them, but they're praying about who God is to them. Are you praying in that way? Not just saying, God, I hope that you'll look after me in this season of COVID nineteen. I hope that you'll financially provide for me and my family. Or I hope that you'll, um, you know, open the economy back up so my business is able to survive through this season, not just praying to God for certain things, which God is capable of doing, but begin praying to God on the basis of who he is. He is a deliverer. He is a rock. He is unlike anyone else in all the world. He alone is God. So I hope that you would learn to pray that way, praying for who God is, not just what God can do. Secondly, we find in this prayer a section where she prays about what God does in general in verses three to eight. <clears throat> it's a prayer about how God works in the world. And basically there's a theme that emerges and it's the theme that if we could use biblical language from another place, it's the theme that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So she is acknowledging in her prayer, her own Condition of humility and how God has given favor to her. And she acknowledges that that's generally how God works in the world. Let's look at it. It says in verse three Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. She's saying, Be careful about boasting in your own strength and might. Don't be so proud of your own autonomy. Don't be so arrogant as to think that it's your strength that has put you in the position that you're in. For the Lord is a God who sees and he weighs the matters of the heart. He's he's looking, he's examining, and one day he'll reveal all these things to be true. And the thing that he gives preference toward is humility. It's neediness, it's dependence upon him. And so Hannah is acknowledging in her prayer this general principle that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And she's warning against that human pride. There's this tendency in the human heart to boast in its own achievements. Many of us, even as we come to interact with God, we, we actually want to interact with God on our own terms. M- many people actually engage with God in a self-salvation project. We wanna interact with God, go to church, read the Bible, whatever the case might be. We, we want God to tell us what we have to do, and then we'll take it from there. God, if you just tell me what's needed, what's required, then I'll go ahead and get after that. But I want my fingerprints to be all over my salvation because I want to do it. That's a human sinful tendency, the, the, the bent of the human heart toward self and away from God. And God is actually trying to show us here through this prayer and through the experience of Hannah that what's needed from us is need. What God wants is our dependence upon Him. What God wants is for us to have a humility about ourselves, to stop looking toward ourselves for salvation and look toward Him. So it's encouraging us then to be dependent upon Him, not autonomous in our own strength. And it gives us a handful of examples here. In fact, it goes through a few different specific examples to try to draw this point home. It it talks about the difference between a warrior who's well-trained well-versed, who's agile, who's athletic and all those different things versus somebody who's clumsy. Look at verse four. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. It's drawing this contrast between somebody who is incredibly gifted, a warrior who has a weapon and is saying that weapon is shattered, whereas the clumsy are outfitted with strength. I hate to do this to my kids, but uh, it just came to mind this morning when I was looking through this, but my daughter Reese is incredibly athletic. I mean, she is graceful. She is, um, you just watch her interact with the world and you can tell that she has this, um, this natural athletic giftedness about her. And it means that she can do gymnastics and she can do stunts and she can do all kinds of cool stuff. And she's very measured in it. And, and then um, my boy Harrison, uh, he's a little bit more clumsy. So Reese will do like a cartwheel or something that's really cool looking and he'll go, watch this. And then I'll just kind of flop around. Um, but, the, but the picture then in my mind is kind of like that. It's the difference between you know that, that human ability that Reese possesses, that natural giftedness versus somebody who's more like Harrison and, you know, in honesty, he's young and, you know, I'm sure he'll, he'll get his skills later on. But it's giving us this contrast between those who are naturally strength, you know, somebody you would look at and you'd say they have strength, they have might, they have ability versus somebody that's clumsy, that you wouldn't want to be on the front lines of your military campaign. And it's saying that the bows of the warriors are broken, but the clumsy the clumsy, those who are needy, those who don't have that natural giftedness, they're the ones outfitted with strength. Secondly, you see this contrast between the well-fed and the hungry. It says in verse 5, those who are full have to hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. Again, it's it's showing this picture that those who from a worldly point of view appear to be well off, they find themselves in the kingdom of God, finding themselves exactly Turned on their heads, that while they were, were once satisfied, while they were once full, while they were once well fed, now they find themselves to be hungry. And those who were hungry now are being well fed. So again, it's this idea that in the kingdom of God, it's, it's, it's an upside down kingdom, that God gives preference to the lowly, that he outfits the lowly with strength and with. Um, you know, satisfaction and with what they need and those who are well off on their own find themselves to be lacking. All right. It also gives a comparison between a large family versus those who are barren, unable to conceive. Look at the end of verse five. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Now, this is the experience of Hannah herself. She's acknowledging this was what I was going through Peninnah had all these kids and she was mocking me and I was barren. And and now God has turned that on his head. One who was once full of children is now pining away. And one who who was once barren now has this complete and full family. That is the principle that's being outlined here, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the main theme then in, in this prayer is that It shows up in verse nine, but it's put like this. It's not by strength that one prevails, that God is showing us here through the prayer of Hannah, that it is actually in our neediness that God outfits us with his strength and his provision. And the truth is what Hannah is praying here and what her experience is, as some commentators have pointed out, really, it's a microcosm of the entire storyline of first and second Samuel, which is also a mini picture of the entire Bible. What Hannah goes through here really shows us these themes that begin to get drawn out through the rest of First and Second Samuel. Here's what it is: It's not by strength that one prevails; it's when somebody relies upon God and what God can do that they truly find what they needed all along. So later on in in, in the story of First and Second Samuel, you'll hear about a they needed a king. They needed a leader. The current leadership was awful. Eli and his two sons were a bunch of bums and they were misleading the people of God. And so they were looking for a spiritual leader. And a dude named Saul happens to outshine everybody else. In fact, they talk about him being incredibly strong. They talk about him being incredibly handsome. They talk about him being taller than all of his peers, that he's a, that he's a head-length taller than anybody else. And they look at him and they say, here's our king. Look at this incredible specimen of humanity. And they appoint him to be king. And what do we find this one who was exalted at the end of the story in First and Second Samuel? We find him cast down. Then another king comes on the scene. His name is David. He's the smallest in his tribe. He's the youngest, smallest, most insignificant. So when they were looking for somebody to replace Saul, all of the other brothers get presented before the prophet Samuel, and they don't even bother to bring David out. He's a shepherd boy. He's the smallest. He's so insignificant. You'd never want to consider him to be the leader of the people. And what does God say? That's my guy. That young, ruddy, supposedly insignificant person, he will be the king who is after my own heart. And David becomes the king. You see it play out in the story that most of us are familiar of, where David, as a young shepherd boy, goes to war against a Philistine giant, Goliath. Goliath is massive. And they talk about him and they detail his his, his armor and his javelin and all this different stuff that he has. And he's just this formidable opponent that's so frightening that the entire army of the Israelites are quaking in their boots, they're shaking in their boots, and they're freaking out. And David comes along and he says, who is this bum? I'll go fight him right now. And they look at David and they say, who are you? You're a shepherd boy. You're not even a warrior. But David goes to battle against him and, and you find him saying in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verse 45, he puts it like this. He's fighting Goliath and all he's got is his shepherd gear. And he says to Goliath in that moment, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. What's the theme that's running throughout all of First and Second Samuel and really the entire Bible? when you come to rely upon God in his name, you're in good hands. David may have looked small and insignificant, but in the hands of the Lord, he was used mightily for God's purposes. He struck down Goliath with a slingshot and a stone, and he was victorious in that moment. But the story is pointing in this direction. Humility is the advantage. In fact, I heard Alistair Begg once say, a pastor. He said, if, if dependence upon God is the goal, then weakness is advantage. Guys, that's really good news. Weakness is advantage. That means that you and I, we've got a shot at this thing, right? We, we, if, if weakness is what we need so that we could rely upon God and depend upon God, then game on for all of us. We don't have to be the most successful or the most prominent or the most well-educated, but all of us have a shot at experiencing the favor of God if we would simply acknowledge our need for him. As we think about this organizationally as a church, I mean, we can look around and go, there are so many significant churches in our nation and so many significant churches in our region. Who are we? And the truth is, that's a great place to be, to think about our campus and go, man, we're just some small campus that meets in a high school and we don't have a building and we don't don't know if we're ever gonna get back into a high school again. We don't know what our future holds guys, we are perfectly situated to experience the favor of God because all we have is a need for him. That's the, that, that's the most impressive thing about us. Ray Ortland, one of my, one of the guys I really look up to, he, he says many churches are unwilling to step into this low place of blessing because they're too successful, too significant in their own eyes. Well, not us. We're perfectly situated to say we're a bunch of bums. And that's okay because we trust that God is going to use us mightily for his glory. And here's why this principle works. It works because the Lord, he's the Lord over life and death and resurrection. How do we know that this thing's going to work? We know it's going to work because the Lord is is the Lord over life and death and resurrection. Look at verse six. The Lord brings death and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. Here's what it's saying. In the moment that is is most prominently declaring your inability, when somebody gets laid down in death and you're able to say, this person does not have a future anymore, no human strength, no ability, what is God able to do? Bring to life. If God is able to do that, if he's Lord over life itself and death and resurrection, if he's able to bring down to the grave and raise back up, then we can trust that Having humility is a good posture to have, that God does oppose the proud and he does give grace to the humble and he is able to look after us even in our low estate. He's also Lord over wealth and status distribution. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. And he has them inherit a throne of honor. Here's what it's saying. God is the one who is doling out the the status that human beings have. And he's the one who's distributing poverty and wealth. He's the one who's overseeing the condition of every single human individual in all of human experience. And God is Lord over that. And one of the frustrations of the Bible is the frustration where the godly look on the ungodly longingly. And they say, why is it that the wicked seem to thrive? Why is it that they have such a carefree life? And meanwhile, we go about destitute. and We go about, you know, in need. But we trust that God is the Lord over wealth and status and the distribution of those things. And we trust that God is able to reward those who are faithful. For he is Lord over all, even over his creation. Look at the, the end of verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. So we can trust that this principle that Hannah is praying about will come true. He's actually rigged the entire thing to work this way, that that it would humble the proud and it would exalt the humble. So when we pray, let's go low. Let's go low. Let's acknowledge our neediness. Here's the third thing that we find in this prayer. It's a prayer toward what God will ultimately do in verses 9 and 10. It's a prayer about the future reality. God will look after his own. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked, they'll be silenced in the place of darkness. Or as other translations say, in the place of Sheol. It's saying that God one day ultimately is going to bring the wicked down. They're going to be silenced. They're boasting now. They're boasting in their rebellion against God and in their well-being and in their strength and in their own might and ability. But one day the wicked will be silenced in the place of Sheol. But God is able to guard the feet of his holy ones. He's able to look after and care for those who hold fast to him, who humble themselves and rely upon him for his goodness and his grace Toward them, for strength is not the way. It is in our clinging to God that we experience the goodness of God. Look at verse 9. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. We don't look at our own might or ingenuity or creativity. We look to the Lord, and those who oppose the Lord will experience rejection from Him. They will be broken. So we want to be a people who are praying and recognizing one day all of this is going to come true. And we're going to hold fast to God in the meantime, but God is coming to judge the earth. Look at verse 10. The most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. It's telling us about this future hope that we have, that God is going to come back. The most high will thunder from heaven, and he's going to bring about his judgment. And the way the Bible uses that word judgment is to say that he's going to make all things right, that he's going to judge the earth, to set things as they ought to be, to bring about his justice in the earth. And so we pray in that direction, acknowledging that God is going to come from heaven and he is going to judge the ends of the earth. He's going to lay everything bare. He's going to expose everything and bring it into the light and he's going to make all things right. So we pray with that confidence and that hope, knowing that God is coming to judge the earth. And finally, it's a prayer about what God is ultimately going to do in the installation of his king. Look at verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, you know, in the immediate future, it's talking about David. David's going to come and he's going to be established on the throne and he's going to rule the people wisely. And that's going to result in their blessing and their benefit and and on all kinds of good things, he's going to give strength to this king and exalt the horn, and he's going to be anointed and all of that. But we also recognize that's not the end of the story. And that's not the entire fulfillment of this promise of, of, of what God is going to do. God is ultimately one day going to install his king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that the Lord is going to be a. a you know, installed. He's the anointed one who's going to be exalted and, and exalted in such a way that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. That, that King Jesus is one day going to come back and going to make all things right again. And so we pray with that sort of confident hope. We pray, obviously, about what God has done for us personally. We pray about what God is doing in the world, but we also want to pray about what God is ultimately one good day going to do when His Son returns, when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And so I hope that you begin to pray in that direction, praying that Jesus would come, that Jesus would come, and that the justice of God would prevail in the earth, and that this King, Jesus, would display His strength and be exalted in all the earth. And I hope that's true. Not only as we pray toward the future, but I hope it's true in your heart today that he is exalted on his throne, the throne of your heart, and you are worshiping and praising him, living for his glory. So let's pray right now about him. Lord, we ask that everyone who's watching this morning and everyone who will watch later, that everyone who's hearing my voice would come to see Jesus as the King of the universe. And that we would pray with a deep humility, relying and trusting in in what he's done for us. Not in our own strength, but in his strength. In the name of the Lord, we believe that we will be victorious. In the name of the Lord, we believe that we will experience salvation. In the name of the Lord, we believe that you are at work for our good. And so we trust you. And Lord, we, we, we put aside this tendency in each of our hearts to trust in our own strength. And we ask God that you would replace that with a trust in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen and amen.